I think we're on page 49. I've kind of given you a more complete set of notes here, so you'll have them for the, for the last day, page 49. This is uh, session 10. This is our last session, so we'll finish up today on our survey of the translations and so forth. Diane, get you a book back there. Okay. Thank you. Remember, we are uh, talking about English translations. We've been tracing that for a number of weeks. We're in the later modern period, 1780 and forward. And uh, we have been noticing that we had Tyndall, who began the work of translation, Tyndall Bible, Tyndall's New Testament member, then uh, Coverdale's Bible, Matthew's Bible, the Great Bible, uh, the Geneva Bible, the Bishop's Bible, then the King James of 1611, and then uh, King James of 1769. It just remind me, Tim, I was supposed to say something, so you remind me here. Uh, Tim wants us to remind you that they're going to be setting up after this class uh, in the auditorium for the fellowship, uh, adult Christmas fellowship tonight. So if you can help with setting up tables, whatever chairs, auditorium afterwards after we finish here. But I could go long, and that way you wouldn't have to, <laughs> you wouldn't have to do that, you know. So. Um, so the King James, 1611, then it was revised a number of times. The version that you buy today when you go to a, to a bookstore and buy a King James is the 1769 fourth revision by Dr. Benjamin Blaney. And then there was the revised version of 1881. Remember, the major change there was that, we'll see, I'll show you that chart again. The King James was based upon a few manuscripts. There's a book there. Yeah. Uh, a few manuscripts, the Texas Receptus, or the Greek text, whereas in the uh, revised version, they made use of uh, more manuscripts, many, many more Greek. So that was a major change there. The Americans produced their own version in 1901 called the ASV of 1901. And I told you that that was very popular among scholars, among professors, Seminary students, Bible college students used that a lot. It didn't penetrate much in the churches, but it was an important study Bible. A lot of people used it. And from that came the New American Standard Bible that is still popular today, the NIV. This chart is not meant to deceive you. It just says the NIV was not based on, it didn't look at those other previous, it did look at them. Anybody who translates look at all, looks at every trans, other translation. When you, if you say, we want to make a new translation, we look at what other people translate. But it's just that it wasn't intended to be a revision of those. The New American Standard is just a revision of the ASV, which is a revision. They all look back to the, to the Greek New Testament, Hebrew New Testament, when they translate. Um, so the ASV of 1901, then the New American Standard... We mentioned something happened with the RSV of 1946 because we've mentioned that, remember, especially around the turn of the century, the turn of the 19th to the 20th century, we had this division in Christianity, sometimes called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. You had basically liberalism that crept into the church. So before that, in the 1800s, in the Civil War, 
If you had Lutherans, you had Episcopalians, you had Baptists, you had Methodists, they all believed in the authority of the Bible. They all believed the virgin birth. They all believed in the second coming of Christ. There wasn't any division on those issues. But then liberalism came in, first in Europe and then in America, and people began to deny the authority of Scripture, the virgin birth, the second coming, the reality of Christ's miracles. And so the RSV was populated by a committee headed by uh, Dean Weigel at Yale University, who didn't, all these people didn't all believe in the, what we might call the fundamentals or the fundamental, the authority of Scripture. So there was some unbelief. This caused, this has caused a split in Bible translations that we use now. So the New American Standard we looked at, and then the NIV last time we talked about, we finished up. We want to talk now about the New King James Version of the Bible. Now notice the line here. This is a revision of the 1769 King James Version. So the new, so in a sense, these are similar. New American Standards are a revision, the ASV, RSV, but, but the, the New King James Version, 1979, the New Testament, Old Testament, 1982, uh, is a revision that continues to use the textus receptus in the New Testament. So remember I said that the King James Version was based on what's called the textus receptus Greek text, which was a printed text. We say it sort of began with Erasmus 1516, but then got the official title TR in 1633, and it's based on a very small number of Greek manuscripts. Uh, most translations today make use of all these. It's usually called eclectic because eclectic means you look at all the manuscripts and you make a choice as to what is the original text. Uh, we're, what we're trying to do is identify the original text among the manuscripts. So uh, all the other Bibles, New American Standard, NIV, ESV, whatever, they're all based on that. The only two that aren't are the King James and the New King James. And this was uh, produced by Thomas Nelson. The head of Thomas Nelson was a fellow by the name, at that time, of Sam Moore, Samuel Moore. And so they were going to revise the New King James, but he was afraid of that if we went with the eclectic text, newer text, people would see those differences and they wouldn't want to buy this. So the New King James is based upon the same Greek text as the King James was based upon same Greek text they're all based on the same Hebrew text remember the second rabbinic Bible there's really no difference there so uh, they produced this new King James based upon that now they updated as I said here they updated sentence structure grammar words idioms got rid of the archaic language you know it's a very good translation it's very good a lot of churches use this a lot of churches use it because they they don't want to get into the textual debate in the New Testament. I'll show you some information about that a little later here, but they don't want to get into the textual debate, so they they use the New King James Version. Now, that's not good enough for the King James-only people. The King James-only people despise the New King James Version. Even though it's based on the same Greek text, exactly the same Greek text, there's no difference, they still despise it. Because, see, they're not really going back to the original they're going back to the King James. The King James is the, they don't want to, some will say it's inspired and error and infallible. In fact, many will say it doesn't have any errors in it. So the King James is the final product. And nothing can deviate. You can't 
even though this is based on the same Greek text, same Hebrew text, it's just a modern uh, updating of the language. No. King James only people have nothing to do with the New King James. But it's very popular. New King James is an extremely popular translation used by a number of churches who see the problem with the archaic language of the King James Version. The major problem with the King James Version is not the textual problem. The major problem is the archaic language. And I try to illustrate this. What are the textual differences here, let's say, between the King James and New King James and, say, the NIV or New American Standard? Well, I've took, looked at the CDC, our doctrinal statement. Have you ever seen our doctrinal statement? I think you're supposed to have read it if you remember. <laughs> I won't ask how many people have read it. But it has 275 verses. I counted them up. I think that's close, pretty close, right? I counted them up yesterday. 275 verses are cited. 275 verses are cited. Well, you get the same doctrinal truth no matter what translation you use. You could, you, you could look at that doctrinal statement, the King James, the New King James, the New American. It wouldn't change the doctrine. Now, if you look at those translations, you'll see different translations of verses. You'll see a different meaning, in some, but you don't see a different doctrine. You're not going to see a difference in the Trinity or the Second Coming or salvation or anything in the other. So these these differences we're talking about in the New Testament among the translations because of the Greek text difference don't affect doctrines, major doctrines like sin, salvation, justification, propitiation, any of those things, rapture question or anything like that. It doesn't. It do, it's not the difference between Presbyterians and Methodists or Episcopalians. These are not. They don't affect any of those differences. So, so. Uh, these are these are non-doctrinal issues, and you can I just put it up here. But if you've got it in your on page fifty, <clears throat> you can see a comparison of the New King James and the King James version there in Romans twelve one. We've just been showing you those comparisons. You can see it's updated. It's a very good translation, quite good. My uh, my Hebrew teacher when I was in seminary actually was the head of the Old Testament committee on this translation project. We come now to the new revised version. We talked about the revised version, and we said, here's we had that split, because now we have liberals. I use, I'm talking about liberals who don't commit to the full authority of Scripture. There's differences of opinion, some must, but no, none, of them, none of them will commit to the absolute authority and errancy of Scripture. They may question miracles or resurrection or something. Well, the RSV uh, is still a good translation. Remember, we talked about it. It's still a pretty good translation. It's been used by a lot of evangelicals. John Piper was his favorite translation. But it had some problems in Isaiah 7. Remember, we talked about uh, 714, you know, the virgin, young woman kind of thing. So conservatives have generally reacted against this. Uh, Not always. the The main problem came in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Remember I said, I talked about these conjectural emendations that sometimes they just conjectured what the text would be. When this thing came out in 1946, John R. Rice, Sword of the Lord. Does anybody know John R. Rice, Sword of the Lord? Remember that? Nobody knows. That's sad, isn't it? (laughs) Well, John R. Rice, he, he, he advertised the RSV, New Testament. He was all for it. He was great. But then the Old Testament came out, and that's when conservatives really said, nope, we're not going that route. None of that RSV stuff. Well, the new RSV, as we see here, is a revision begun in 1974, completed in 1990. So this 
Revised Standard Version has a committee that stays together. I say it's a, it's a revision designed to eliminate, to make improvements in structure, clarity, eliminate remaining archaisms, still retain the flavor of the King James tradition. As I say, number three, it's the most ecumenical of all English versions. It contains not only the 66 books of the Protestant canon, but also the books of the Apocrypha, as well as three other books accepted by Eastern Orthodox churches. So it's the most ecumenical version. Uh, I, when I was teaching a seminary, I'd always try to get my students to buy one of these because it's a very handy thing to have if you're a pastor than that, to have all these to have all these uh, the apocrypha there, so you know what's in there. So you have the full canon of Roman Catholic. It's just a handy Bible to have if you want to know what the full canon of the Roman Catholic Church is and so forth. Uh, as I say, conservatives have pointed to certain liberal biases, and they don't really accept it or use it that much, but. I just present again that it's still in the King James tradition, very similar to King James language here. Uh, Then we come to the contemporary English version. We talked about, you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, there was this modern version, modern translations that that came about in common English. And we talked about one of the most popular in 1966 was a TEV called Good News for Modern Man. Today's English version, Good News for Modern Man, and said eventually that was revised into the Good News Bible in 1976 and the Good News New Testament. This was produced by the American Bible Society. The American Bible Society is the Bible Society of the United States of America. (laughs) But they do a great service in the sense that they print Bibles, and they print them very cheaply. You can't buy a Bible really hardly any cheaper than you can buy it from the American Bible Society. I bought, I bought a lot of Bibles there. They sell like Greek New Testaments, Hebrew Bibles, and everything. But they sell it at cost. So if your bookstore wants to buy a copy of the King James from the American Bible Society, they don't get any discount. They sell it to them the same price they'll sell it to you. So you can get Bibles cheap from them. They do a good service. Uh, but their theology is not as conservative, maybe, as many of us would like. But they were they were interested in producing these Bibles in sort of modern, easy-to-read English, and they produced the TEV, Good News Bible, Good News Testament. They were interested in one that was even simpler language, and that's this contemporary English version I mentioned on the bottom of page 50. It's very paraphrastic. It's designed for children. It's at a fourth-grade reading level. So it's designed for people who don't know English at all, who are very struggling, you know, it's, it's that kind of Bible. One of the problems is number two there, they, they translate, they, they don't have key theological terms. I mean, our pastor has spent a lot of weeks talking about justification and sanctification and those kind of words. Well, those words aren't in the Bible. They've eliminated those. Well, some theological terms are pretty hard to eliminate. You can simplify, but it's hard to get rid of propitiation and justification and sanctification and redemption and atonement, covenant. But they, they do because they're trying to make it as simple as they can. So that motive is not necessarily a bad motive, but it just it's not a, rec- a translation that we would normally recommend for someone to use. And here it is. And as you can see, it's very paraphrastic. Dear friends, God is good. Well, that's true, but that's not quite the same as, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, is it? You know, you know, I beseech you, I beg you by the mercies of God. It's not quite the same thing as saying, 
God is good. That's that's pretty paraphrastic there in that particular sense. Well, we come to the New Living Translation. Remember we talked about last time about the Living Bible. Remember we said the Living Bible was produced by a man by the name of Kenneth Taylor who worked at Moody Bible Institute. And in his day, the big Bible at Moody was the ASV of 1901. But he was trying to teach the Bible to his children. He had ten children, and so he's trying to teach them the Bible. And they couldn't, they just couldn't handle this ASV archaic language. So he starts translating the Bible himself for his kids, remember? And he comes up with the living Bible. And it's extremely popular. Remember, I said Billy Graham looked at it and read it and said, Give me 50,000 copies. You know, it's kind of like what happened to Billy Graham. You remember William Randolph Hirsch? Remember what he said about Graham? He heard Billy Graham, and he sent a note to the people in his newspaper chain saying, Puff Graham. That's a newspaper term for Give him plenty of press, you know. They said, Puff Graham. And that made Billy very famous in the newspapers and so forth. Well, this is like Billy's same thing. He said, 50,000 copies. All of a sudden, this Bible is very, very popular. And it was extremely popular because it was easy to read and so forth like that. But... As I say, 40 million copies were sold. But in 1989, it was decided to revise it and base it more on the original language because Ken Taylor didn't know Greek. He just translated the ASV. So I've got it over here. It's a revision of the Living Bible, but they look back at the Greek and Hebrew trying to make it a little more accurate. So the Living, New Living Translation. I've I've looked at this a lot. I've read this a lot. I kind of like it, (laughs) I have to admit. I kind of like it. It's 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 uh, it's interesting to read. It's easy to read. I kind of enjoy seeing what the living the New Living Translation has. But notice number three here. Here's what Craig Blomberg. He's a famous New Testament scholar. He was the principal translator for the Gospel of Matthew, and he says this version is not suitable as a regular Bible for adults. He says that the version is for kids or very poor adult readers, and he suggested that the readers that New Living Translation should move to a more accurate version when they are able. He says, I relish the chance to work on a New Living Translation team to convert the Living Bible into a truly dynamic equivalent translation, but I never recommended it to anyone except to supplement the reading of a more literal translation to generate freshness and new insights, unless they are kids or very poor adult readers. My 16- and 12-year-old daughters have been weaned on the New Living Translations and, and, and loved it, but have already on their way and now frequently turned to the NIV. So, you know, you can take the, see what he's saying. He's a translator, but he doesn't think the Bible we probably should use normally in church and things like that. We need probably a little more accurate translation. But it's very helpful to read. It's, you know, it's interesting reading. Uh, I enjoy looking at it sometimes and so forth. Uh, give you kind of a different perspective on a text or a paragraph or something like that. It could be worthwhile in that particular sense. Um, Then we have the uh, Net Bible, uh, bottom of page 51, 1996. As I say, this term Net Bible is a double entendre, and since it stands for the New English Translation, so N-E-T, New English, and it also Net stands for the Internet, so the Net Bible. It's translation available for free on the Internet. There's the, the website, but you just kind of Google the Net Bible and you'll come up with it. 
It's the work of evangelicals. It was conceived in 1995. First translation appeared in 96. New Testament complete in 98. Old Testament 2005. It's now working the Apocrypha. The reason this came about was because the internet was kind of exploding about the time they were thinking about this. And one of the problems with Bibles, it's not necessarily a problem, is Bibles are copyrighted. And one of the reasons the Bibles are copyrighted, and if I produced a Bible, I'd copyright it too, because the problem is if you produced a Bible, somebody else could take that Bible, change the words, publish it, and they would think that that's your Bible. You know, you, you've got to almost protect your Bible to make sure somebody doesn't change it and pervert it and you put the name on it. You know, so Bibles tend, like all books, need to be copyrighted to protect them from uh, being changed or uh, and so forth. So one of the problems with that is that that limits what you can do. If you look at like the NIV on the inside of the NIV, it says. You can uh, republish the NIV up to, I think it maybe says, a thousand verses, except you can't do one book. Like, you can't just say, put the book of Romans. We couldn't, as a church, copy the NIV book of Romans and, and, and distribute it to our, to, to our folks here. We couldn't do that. We could do, every, we could do all the verses, but except one. <laughs> you, know, you can't do a whole book. And you can do up to a thousand. They're trying to keep people, you know, from re- doing that kind of thing. So, uh, what th- this this started at a meeting of a theological meeting um, called the Evangelical Theological Society, and uh, some people were there meeting, and they were trying to decide what do we do about the internet because we want like we want we'd like to have a Bible that we can use on the internet that we don't have these copyright restrictions. That's the problem with, you know, you've got to get permission to use this and all that. And so they decided that uh, they would try to ask Zondervan for, for permission to use the NIV. And a person that was at this meeting said, I'll put up a million dollars to get NIV, the NIV, Zondervan, to allow you to use the NIV like this. And the people there at the table said, no, we can produce our own for that much money. You know, we, we don't need them. And so that's what they decided to do. They decided to produce their own Bible, uh, the Net Bible, that they could control and so forth. Now, if I mention on top of page 52, it's noted for a massive number of notes, about 60,000, including extensive text-critical, lexical, exegetical notes. The translators and editors used the notes to give a translation that was formally equivalent while placing a somewhat more functional translation in the text to promote better readability. So if you've never looked at the Net Bible, you might want to look at this sometimes. It's very helpful. It has a lot of helpful notes. A lot of very detailed exegetical notes. I put one of them here about a problem that occurs. Uh, and I talked about this. Well, that wasn't this enough, though. I taught Romans here, what, about a year ago or something, and we talked about this problem here. But notice the NIV 84. Regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, and who the spirit through the spirit of holiness was declared to be, declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead. So the key phrase I'm focusing on is declared to be the son of God. Now, if you look at most translations, they have declared to be the son of God. But notice the 2011 NIV. They have changed it to appointed the Son of God by the resurrection from the dead. And the Net Bible has appointed the Son of God in power. 
Now, the word that's translated here, they have a note, upon the Son of God in power. Most translations render the Greek participle, haristhentas, from horizo, declared or designated in order to avoid the impossible interpretation that Jesus was appointed the Son of God by the resurrection. However, the Greek term horizo is used eight times in the New Testament and always has the meaning to determine or appoint. Paul is not saying that Jesus was appointed the Son of God by the resurrection, but that the Son of God in power by the resurrection is indicated by the hyphenation. He was born in weakness, in human flesh, and he was raised with power. This is similar to Matthew 28, 18, where Jesus told his disciples after the resurrection, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. What they're saying here, if you can read that quickly, is that the Greek word means appointed. But translators are kind of afraid to put that in the text because it can easily be misunderstood. One of the earliest Christian heresies is called adoptionism about Christ and says Christ was not really fully God. He was sort of adopted into the Godhead, either at his baptism, uh, either at his dead resurrection, or maybe later his glorification. So he was uh, he was sort of adopted. The Gnostics believe this, and this except through church history. So he wasn't fully God. He was sort of made part of the Godhead in some sense, a lesser God. And the Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, would hold to some form of adoption. So most translators, most translations, if you look at them, have the word he was declared to be the Son of God. So Paul is just saying. Jesus was the descendant of David and who through the Spirit of Holy was declared with power to be the Son of God by... The resurrection was simply a declaration of who he was. It was a declaration. But the text actually says he was appointed at his resurrection. So how, what's the problem? What's the, why, does, why did the NIV go back to this? They went back to it because that's what the word really means. But what they're trying to explain to us, Paul is saying, and the Net Bible kind of brings it out well, he was appointed the Son of God in power. The phrase in power goes with this phrase appointed. So it's not saying that he became the Son of God at any time during that his resurrection, but he became the Son of God in power. It's kind of a higher status. He was already the Son of God. Because Paul starts off here by saying, the gospel is regarding his Son, that is the Son of God. And he tells us about the Son, what happened to the Son. The Son came to earth and became flesh. He took upon himself humanity. He became he, the Son of God, as to his human nature was the Son of David. He came into a higher state. He was glorified. He became the Son of God in power. That's, what, that's why they've got it translated, the Son of God in power. And that in power goes with the point of the Son of God. And they say it's like, it's like all authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Jesus says, you know, now I have all authority. It's like Peter says, a better text is Peter on the day of Pentecost when he says, this same Jesus that you crucified has been made Lord and Christ. So the resurrection, God uh, uh, says, this is Lord. I'm, by his resurrection, I'm telling you, this is Lord. He is Lord. He is Yahweh. But you can see it's easy for people to misunderstand what appointed might mean here. Yeah, it's very So they have an extensive note. I'm just, I don't know if all this is making sense, but I'm just saying, this is an interesting Bible, and they have some very helpful notes done by a very good scholarship and so forth. So you might take a look at the Net Bible sometime and see what it looks like. And there it is on <clears throat> Romans 12, 1 and 2. And you said Zondervan? 
No, not Zondervan, no. It's just independently published. It's on the Internet, and they do have hard copies. But it's not uh, Zondervan. Zondervan is the NIV. It's mostly just the Internet Bible, but there are hard copies. Let's talk about the Holman Christian Standard Bible. The Holman Christian Standard Bible. New Testament 2000, Old Testament 2004, Revised 2009. This is the Southern Baptist Translation. That is, it's under the direction of the Sunday School Board of the Southern Baptist Convention. They changed their name to Lifeway Christian Publishers. Published by their publisher, Broadman Holman. Now, the Southern Baptist Convention, previously to this, used the NIV in their Sunday School materials. But they decided they wanted to control their own translation. They wanted to have an exclusively sort of Southern Baptist translation. I'm been to any Southern Baptist churches recently, so I don't know what's... It doesn't mean... Southern Baptist churches are autonomous churches. They can do what they want to. But the Sunday school material, if you're using the stuff from Lifeway or the Sunday school board, it's going to be in the Holman Christian Standard Bible. But churches in the Southern Baptist Convention don't have to do that. But if they do it, that's what it's going to be in. So this was a replacement so that they could sort of control their own translation. Uh, it was begun by a guy by the name of Arthur Farstad, who was formerly an editor of the New King James. He began working on a New Testament, and then he died, and uh, another Dallas seminary profile, Edward Bloom, took over. It's a 90-team translation team. It's a well-done translation. Claims to have a translation philosophy called optimal equivalence. This was a term invented by this Hebrew professor I told you about, that I, my Hebrew professor in seminary, James Price. He invented this term, optimal equivalence, which is supposed to be between formal equivalence and functional. You say, what's that? I'm going to tell you in just a minute. Just hold on, and I'll tell you what those terms mean. Uh, a second edition was produced in 2009. It makes mild use of gender-inclusive language. One unique feature is the use of Yahweh for the name of God, the Tetragrammaton. So, remember we talked about this before, that in the Old Testament, in our Bibles, like the NIV, the King James, New American Standard, New Revised, all, most of the translations, there's two forms of Lord. The, this form is the Hebrew word Adonai, which just means Lord or Master. Then there's the all-capital one, which is actually a personal name. That's God's personal name. And most people think today it should be pronounced something like Yahweh or something. Remember, it's called the Tetragrammaton because there's four letters, Y-H-W-H. And we think those are the vowels. Remember, we talked about the problem of knowing what the vowels were and so forth and Y-H-W-H. Well, they have gone back to putting that in. So that's kind of a distinctive feature. The, one, the major translator, the head of it, says, uh, we use it as the rendering of Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, whenever God's name is being given, either explicitly using the name or implicitly, when he's being identified, I am Yahweh, whereas in our Bibles we'd say, I am the Lord, capital L-O-R-D in the NIV, I am Yahweh, uh, when he's contrasted with other gods such as Baal and so forth. But I say, Yahweh is only used about 10% of the occurrence of the Tetragrammaton. So it's not universal. It's not every time they see the Tetragrammaton, they put Yahweh, it's only 10% of the time. So it's not consistent there on that. But this is a very good Bible. It's an excellent translation. Uh, very very well done. And, what uh, does mild use of gender inclusive language mean? 
Well, it means that it means that we sort of get away from male-dominated language, you know. Uh, so we don't use he all the time, or we. I should. I could give you some examples of that. We actually had a. We had an example of gender inclusive language in a song we sang this morning, but I can't remember the name of the song. But <laughs> we switched from a. We switched from a singular pronoun at the end to a that to a plural, which is really grammatically wrong. But that's the that's the new way of including everybody by saying they. Uh, and all. So, some, so it's it's a mild use. It's what we've all come to. It's even you know, it's me and my preaching. I mean, I I get up and preach. It's hard to say uh, he 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 all the time. I don't know. It's just part of the culture. And it's not because I'm a feminist. You know, I'm, I'm a radical feminist. It's just it's just that we're just used to saying he and she. You know, or he and she rather than he all the time. It's just way we're thinking today and so forth. So it's a mild use. It's not an exclude it's not an extensive use of it. But I'll maybe I'll show you some examples here. Um, so there's the Holman Christian. We come over to the ESV, English Standard Version. This is a revision of the RSV. Now what happened here, remember I said the RSV was done by the liberals, but particularly people like John Piper, Wayne Grudem, when they went to seminary, like Piper went to Fuller, they used the RSV, and he liked it. Now, when he went to Bethlehem and, and, and started preaching there, he preached from the New American Standard Bible. He didn't preach from the RSV, but he said, that was my reading and memorizing Bible, he says. So what they did, the ESV committee did, was they got the copyright to this Bible. See, the RSV had been updated to the New Revised Standard Version. So they bought, they bought uh, the copyright to the RSV of 1946. And as I say here, uh, it's a revision of the 1971 RSV, that is the update of the RSV, by a translation team of more than 100 under the direction of a 12-member team called the Translation Oversight Committee, which continues to meet. It's essentially literal translation. It was the... the, the People like Piper and Grudem were dissatisfied with the translation philosophy of the NIV. They wanted a more literal translation and a less meaning for meaning. We'll get to that in just a second. So Piper and Grudem got the copyright to the RSV, the, the latest RSV. Um, as I say here, number two, it was undertaken with the idea that we need an evangelical version that's more literal than the New, New International Version, but more idiomatic than the New American Standard. As I say, it's fast becoming the major alternative to the New International Version among evangelicals. So those are the two most popular Bibles, probably, today. New Bibles are the ESV, the NIV. Remember, I said the NIV is the most popular. It outsells all the Bibles. King James still sells well. New King James sells well. All these Bibles sell pretty well. So you'll find all of these. Uh, as I say, number three, it updated the archaic language. It restored virgin in Isaiah 7.14. So it got rid of the liberal tendencies of the RSV. Tried to make it more conservative. 2007, they had a revision, about 360 changes. 2008, they had a study Bible, which is a very good study Bible. 2011, a revised edition was published. So there is the RSV. Uh, 
Now, there's no reason. These are all good translations. Holman Christian, NIV, New King James. You can use any of these. I mean, it's there's no there's no reason to be restricted to one translation. We have one translation we use in the church of NIV, but there's no reason you as a Christian can't read other translations. It's very helpful to do that, as we'll see. Let's talk about what is translation theory. I've used these terms before. Formal equivalence and functional equivalence. So let me give give a definition and see if we can make sense of it. Formal equivalence, you might call it formal correspondence, as it once known, or maybe literal translation. A translation that seeks to reproduce the form of the Greek language into English, it's primary a word-for-word translation. Functional equivalence, sometimes called dynamic equivalence. A translation that seeks to produce primarily the use of Greek language into English. It's primarily a meaning-for-meaning translation. As I say on page 54, no translation is completely literal, though some are more than others. Translations can be viewed on a continuum. So here's a chart. You have it there. To show you more literal translations, we talked about the Living Bible. It's pretty free. It's pretty paraphrastic here. Phillips, remember the Phillips uh, Living Letters and so forth, and and uh, Taylor's Living Letters. So the the most literal translation of all is the ASV of 1901. King James, New American Standard, RSV. Here's the ESV. Holman's a little more. Here's the NIV. And as you move over, you get into freer translations. So more more literal, uh, more free over this side. Um, as I say, one way to illustrate this difference is this is look at a particular verse, say here in the ESV, New America in NIV. So the ESV says, let these words sink into your ears. Well, I understand that, don't you? New America saying, let these words sink into your ears. But I don't usually talk like that. So the NIV says, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. In other words, when I'm trying to get somebody's attention, I don't use I don't usually say, let these words sink into your ears. I could, because that's the language of the King James, and that King James language has invaded our vocabularies, and so we say it. But more li- more likely we'd say, hey, listen to what I'm trying to tell you here. Listen carefully to what I'm trying to say. So I'm trying to show you the distinction between a more literal word for word and a more meaning. So this is this is understandable English, but this is probably more normal English, we might say. So I say here, the New American Standard ESV are strictly literally. The NIV is trying to take it and make it more meaning for meaning. As I say, the difference is this great, and this is a pretty great difference, are pretty rare. Many times they have clearly exactly the same translation. So it's not always this different. Like John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the same in the King James, the New King James, the ESV, the Holman Christian Standard Bible, the NIV. They all have exactly the same thing. So it's not that every verse is different. They all follow that exactly the same way. I'll give you some more examples here. Matthew one twenty one. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. New American Standard. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now, I understand that, but that's not normally how we talk. So if I go to the hospital and visit some woman who's had a child, 
uh, don't usually say, what are you going to call his name? I don't say, what are you, that's how Greek says it, granted. <laughs> that's how Greek says it. I will usually say, what are you going to name the child, right? What are you going to name the child? Or if you say, well, his name is William, I might say, what are you going to call him? Bill, Billy, or what are you going to call him? But I don't say normally, what are you going to call his name? That's just not the way we talk in English. Normal English. It's understandable. So the NIV says, we will, she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. That's what they're trying to do there. Like it or not, that's what they're trying to do. <laughs> Mark 1, 2. Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before thee. The ESV updates the, or gets rid of the archaism. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. Well, I understand that. Behold, I will send my messenger before your face. But that's not how we normally talk. We would say something like, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. We don't use it say ahead of your face. You know what I'm saying? We, that's, we just don't, don't talk like that in normal English. So that's what they're trying to do. That's the principle that they're operating. Here's 2 Samuel 18, 25. The watchman called out and told the king, and the king said, if he is alone, so they're waiting for this guy to come. And he might be alone. He might have some other people with him. He says, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. That's what the Hebrew says, literally. The New American Standard, the watchman called and told the king, and the king said, if he is by himself, there is good news in his mouth. What does that mean? The watchman called out to the king and reported it. The king said, if he is alone, he must have good news. He's bringing good news. We don't normally say he has good news in the mouth, you know. We just don't. We don't talk exactly like that. We can understand this perfectly clear. And... If you're a Hebrew student at the seminary where I taught, this is what you like. Don't you shoot. <laughs> and the reason you like that is because you can look at that and figure out what the Hebrew is. And that's what you're really interested in doing a lot of times. So a lot of pastors love the New American Standard or something like that because it's much more literal. Because I can look at that New American Standard, I can see it in, in the English, and I can see the Greek construction right there. I can tell you, well, this is a genitive, this is a participle. Well, I can see what's going on. So it's very helpful if you know Greek, <laughs> you know. But it's not always the most easy to read English or the most normal English. So there's no reason, again, that we have to use one translation in our Bible study. We can use many. Remember, this is that statement we read from the King James preface where they're quoting Augustine, St. Augustine. They say, Therefore, as St. Augustine said, the variety of translations is profitable for finding out the sense of the Scriptures. So it's very helpful to look at a number of translations and kind of see what's going on there. There's nothing wrong with that. We don't have to be wedded to one. I just put these readability levels up here because people conduct tests. They have ways of testing, you know, literature and seeing how difficult it is. You see, the King James is the most difficult, as you might imagine. The archaic language, the old language makes for readers today, it makes it much more difficult. And they're putting it on a grade level. As you can see, that contemporary English version we talked about is much lower because, remember, it had simplified vocabulary and everything like that. The NIV is right here about 7.4. ESV about 7.8 so forth like that. 
If you're interested in doing more reading on this, there's lots of books on this. I just thought I'd list a couple of them in case you somehow you didn't get enough of what I had to say. I can't believe <laughs> that you're not bored out of your head already. But if you're, if you're not, there's a new book out. It's only 184 pages. got lots of pictures, how we got the Bible. There's a much more detailed book if you're really interested in going into depth here. A lot of depth. The best book is Paul Wagner's book, The Journey from Text to Translations, 464 pages. But there's others, but you can, you know, if you want to get one of these as a Christmas gift sent to yourself. Yes, it's me. Which one of the translations is the message? Maybe you mentioned it. I didn't talk about the message. That was a message done by Eugene Peterson, a, a one individual. It's a very paraphrastic, as you can see by that chart where I had... Uh, did I have the message? I don't think I had the message. Up. I left it off. But the message is a very paraphrastic. It would be way over there to the right side, very free. Well, I've got it there, but I don't think I have it on the uh, on the chart where we looked at the uh, here. I didn't put it. I just left it off there because. But it would be way over here. It's it's Eugene Peterson's own little take. It's interesting. It's fun. But I, you know, I wouldn't recommend it as you know your standard accurate translation. Nothing wrong with it. Anything else? All right. Thank you for your endurance and perseverance. <laughs> Merry Christmas, and we'll see you again. Hopefully.